Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we come to your word with awe and reverence. We recognize it is not the word of man, it is the word of God. You deliberately did these things in the past that we might learn. And how we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your Holy Spirit and to your truth. Let us bow in obedience and know and love you better. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. And thank you very much, Mike, for leading our service this morning and really opening our eyes to quite a bit of research that he's been doing there on the background of it. And those of you who don't know Mike uh, will see that he's wearing a little set of dolphins on his lapel. He'll tell you what those dolphins are all about afterwards, but it does mean he's been down where the dolphins live. That's all I can say at this moment. Jonah, God's reluctant evangelist. This series on Jonah is very deliberate. It's set after we have covered for several weeks, in fact, for a couple of months, uh, lessons on witness, on evangelism, and sharing the gospel. And we're also preparing, as we announced last week, for the prospect of an outreach, a mission, let's call it, uh, through Christianity Explored sometime in the early part of this coming summer. And we wish that to be uh, something that the whole of Amesbury can join in. So that's the context. And it's no surprise that Jonah is indeed a reluctant evangelist. The book starts with these words, uh, and it simply says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. There are some commentaries uh, that would suggest that this story isn't actually fact. In fact, for many, many years, people believed it was fiction, because they didn't think it was possible a human being could survive three days and three nights in the stomach of a huge sea monster. Uh, Mike will be telling you next week uh, something slightly different, I have no doubt, about that. But the thing is that when we look at what the Bible says about them, about Jonah, we learn some interesting facts. First, we've got his surname here. He was the son of Amittai. So if he was uh, in England today, he'd be Amittai's son like Davidson or something like that, but um, uh, at least we've learned something about him, that he was a real character. He wasn't just a fictional person from, uh, from, from invention. The next thing it says is that we learn something about his profession, and Mike asked us questions on that. What did he do for a living? It says that the God of Israel had Jonah as his servant, the word servant doesn't mean somebody with a little white thing over their arm who's going to say, would you like some more wine, or would you rather have the fish, sir? Uh, it's a, a slave, actually, who's bought into a family and is owned by the family, and this tells us God owned Jonah. He worked for God. And it then tells us what his role was, and it was a prophet. Not only was he a servant, he was God's spokesman as well. And then it tells us something about the suburbs where he grew up, a town called Gath-Hefer. Where is that? Let it bounce into the screen. Here we go. Ah, there it is, in Galilee. And guess where it's in the suburbs of? The town of Nazareth. Jesus would have walked past Jonah's grave many times in his life. This was no fictional dream character. And not just that, Jesus himself referred to Jonah 
as a sign. And it went even further than this, that when people were asking God, the Jews and Pharisees said, come on, you're, you're the big hero miracle worker, show us a sign. Jesus said, you're not going to get any sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Yes, this is a real true story. Jesus, in fact, went further and said, in the same way Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, I'm staking my reputation on the fact that the Son of Man will also be in the grave for three days and three nights. And so the whole imagery here was actually a historical picture of what Jesus would do as well. So uh, that's a little bit more on that side of it. But what about his times that he lived in? And what were the, um, what were the, the, uh, the series of things that he grew up in, the, the historical bit? As uh, was mentioned by Mike, he uh, was the... Um, uh, he lived during the reign of a king called Jeroboam. This one was called Jeroboam II. There were two King Jeroboams in the history of Israel. The first King Jeroboam broke Israel up into two states. You'll see Judah is the bit in the south, and that's where the son of King Solomon stayed. King Rehoboam I formed with the, 12, uh, with the remaining uh, 10 or, or 9 tribes the state of Israel, and that was the kingdom to the north, and it split the kingdom thereafter of Israel. And um, King Jeroboam II, it describes here that Jonah prophesied to him, and in the, uh, uh, the little clip, the little video clip you saw there, you saw that Jonah was trying to impress him, it says, and say good things about him, whereas uh, Amos was trying to say bad things about King Jeroboam II. And the answer is, both were correct, because both had been sent by God. Early in Jeroboam's reign, Jonah came and said, your kingdom is going to expand. Let me show you on this little map here. After a few years of Israel, which was really large, existing, it got trapped by its enemies into this area here. Syria came and defeated it many times. Ammon and Moab also fought against them. And so all this territory you see here was squeezed into that tiny pocket of land until King Jeroboam II. And what did he do? Jonah promised, you're getting it all back, all the land that Solomon had. And sure enough, by the end of Jeroboam's reign, God blessed his army and victory, and they took back an awful lot of that land. So Jonah had a very important mission, and um, it was, uh, in a sense, uh, quite important that he give that message. Let me just stop for one second here. It's very easy to come to an important person and give them a gospel message that is nice. You're going to be rich, O king. You're going to expand your kingdom. And people love it when you come up and say, Jesus is lovely and kind. Just become a Christian and all will be wonderful and you'll have lots of money and you'll grow up and die at an old age. It's dead easy to prophesy a false gospel that promises prosperity. But Jonah, this time, had to produce a different gospel. And let's carry on and see what he had to do next. Because his next mission 
he was told he was going to have to go to Nineveh. That is about 500 miles away into a new kingdom that had started to conquer the world called Assyria. And they lived about where Iran and Iraq are on, on the maps nowadays. A most cruel regime. And eventually Assyria did destroy Israel and came up and took all of Judah apart from the city of Jerusalem. And they would take the people, they would kill all the men if they could, they would strip people, and then they would line them up, put wooden and steel or, or iron yokes on them, and make them march those 500 miles all the way into Nineveh. And those that survived, they resettled. They weren't going to let them back. A most cruel regime. And it was that regime that Jonah was told, go and preach against it. He was going to give them bad news because its wickedness had come up. And so Jonah, of course, obeyed exactly all that God told him. Not. Because he went the complete opposite direction down to the town of Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa, the largest port in Israel today. And it was then. And that's where he found a ship, and he decided, I'm going off to Tarshish, which is 2,000 miles that direction. It is about Spain. That's where most commentators think he was told to go. In the first video you saw, the impression was given that Jonah was afraid of Nineveh. And that is the reason he wouldn't go there. Actually, the, the last chapter of the book of Jonah tells us quite a different story. He was not afraid of Nineveh. He was stubborn and determined that they weren't going to hear the good news about God. He did not want that wicked, horrible city and that nation of Assyrians turning and repenting and God being good to them. And that's why he went the opposite direction. It's quite shocking when you think about it. And he thought, I'll cross the sea. 200 years before Jonah, King David wrote this psalm. And Jonah would have sung this psalm in his, uh, in his fellowship meetings. And it's Psalm 139, and it says, Where can I flee from your presence if I settle on the far side of the sea? Even there your hand will guide me. Jonah was about to discover that firsthand for himself. And that's the direction he went from Gath Hefer, Joppa, about 2,000 miles, he was intending to go all the way to Tarshish, while God had called him the opposite direction. As you can see from the little map, he didn't quite get there. Man overboard. That's the story that we're going to look at. Jonah at sea. And chapters 1 and 2 tell the story of Jonah at sea. Chapters 3 and 4 tell the story of Jonah on the dry land. There are three actions in this story. And um, it reminds us that Jonah was disobedient. But it also reminds us we cannot choose who we bless with the gospel. It's not our decision. And there are some people that you may find it very difficult to witness to. We've had many missionaries in the world, and they've been sent to countries which they'd rather not go to. When I was a young Christian, I heard of a gentleman who had taken his family and lived in Pakistan. 
He spent many, many tens of years in that country. He could count on the fingers of one hand the number of believers who became Christians through the ministry. It was so tough because of the heavy persecution. And today, as you'll find out later on uh, this year when we're, we're getting a visit from a, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the world uh, uh, missionaries that are, are across the world that, that are, are discovering what's going on in the world in persecution, you'll discover that Pakistan is the number one most persecuted country for believers at the moment, worse than North Korea. But it's um, a fact that the mission, we have not got the choice. And when Jonah was sent to Nineveh, he should not have feared God's intentions. But the three actions of this, firstly, God provided for Jonah. A dirty big wind and a storm. Now, if you've been sitting here in Amesbury last weekend, a few days ago, you've seen, this, you've seen the wind, and some of you might have seen evidence of the storm, but this was at sea and extremely violent. And it says that the sailors were three things. They were afraid, and then they prayed, so they really were, were, were scared, and then they threw their cargo into the sea. But meanwhile, Jonah slept. In fact, one of the versions of the Bible, uh, one of the oldest versions of the Bible says that Jonah snored and um, the, the, the captain uh, actually poked him and said, why are you snoring? Can you imagine it? All this going on on the deck and down below all you can hear is the snores of Jonah coming up. And uh, Jonah was quite determined not to get involved, as you can see. But this then leads us on to uh, the fact of what the, the sailors uh, were, were trying to do. They were, remember, Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They didn't believe in, in, in the Lord. They were idolatrous. They prayed to their own little gods, and um, they uh, were keen that everyone does the same. And so the lot fell on Jonah, and yet Jonah was lying there asleep. He didn't care for others. He was careless with people's souls. And so when the lot pointed, they cast lots and it pointed to Jonah, they asked three questions, fairly obvious ones. Who's causing all this? Because the lot says it's you, Jonah. What is it you've done that makes us in this horrible situation? And then the obvious question, what have we got to do to get out of this mess? And isn't it interesting they said, who is responsible for this? Because they recognized God was angry with them. They showed more what I'll call religious insight than Jonah really wanted to know about. Jonah made three responses to those three questions. Number one, it's my fault. And then he gave this very peculiar explanation. He said, I trust or worship or fear the Lord. Not very much, Jonah, if you're right prepared to go the opposite direction he sends you. And then he says, in your Bible it says God of the heavens, but actually the way the sailors would have read this is God of the sky and of the sea and of the dry land. Wow! My little idol only pretends to be God of that little town. But your God, Jonah, is God of everything. This is the guy that's in control of the whole universe. And he's your God. And it's your fault. What have you done? Well, I'm running away from him. Oh, that's something. As if you could run away from a God that's big, that fills everywhere. And yet, that's the message he came back with. 
And then he said, if you want it sorted, pick me up and the sea will come calm if you throw me into the sea. What was Jonah doing here? God had said, witness to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm away the opposite direction, as far as I can go across this sea, that place called Tarshish. Well, he knew he had to cross the sea, and yet it was the God of the sea he talked about. That's a bit risky. And then, of course, the next thing that he did is that he refused to, to get involved any further. And then, because he really wasn't going to witness in Nineveh, he said to them, you lot, pick me up and toss me into the sea. And therefore, guess who becomes responsible for Jonah's death? No, he wasn't going to commit suicide, but he was quite happy that people kill him. And he was quite prepared to go through that for the simple reason he was not going to witness to these Ninevites. No, no way. Now, that, if that's stubbornness, I don't know what is. It's, it shows a, a peculiar state of mind that God's servant could possibly be so vexed and so self-righteous and just think that salvation is for the Jews and the Israelites alone, but not for the rest of the world. And despite the fact that he was God's mouthpiece in many situations. Well, there we go. And uh, so it moves on to the next bit. As we know in the story, that terrified them. And they tried to row harder. Because they realized this guy's God means business. But in the end, they had no choice. And they cast, God, cast Jonah overboard. And listen to what they said. These idolatrous sailors, Gentiles who'd never heard of the Lord, prayed to the Lord, the creator of the sky, the sea, and the earth, the one and only God. And they said, don't make us guilty of this innocent blood. Why? Because Lord, you are in charge. You have done as you pleased. These godless sailors suddenly became godly and recognized this God, the Lord. If we were Christians, we'd say Jesus is the Lord, and he's in charge, and we sailors accept this. And uh, sure enough, as soon as they threw Joan overboard, the sea ceased raging. The men feared the Lord even more. They're now believers. It says they offered a sacrifice, and they made vows. They went through five things, I believe, that brought them we would call them nowadays to become Christians. Number one, they prayed. Number two, they prayed to the right person, the Lord. Number three, they believed, they feared, and they trusted in God. Number five, I'm running out of fingers, I've got my wrong fingers. Number four, they committed a sacrifice. What's a sacrifice? They took an animal of some sort, lamb maybe, and they said, this, we're guilty. Our blood needs to be shed. We have sinned. But this animal, his blood, accept, Lord, as a substitute on our behalf. This is exactly what Jesus did on the cross, our sacrifice. And they offered to that, uh, to the Lord, a sacrifice. And then they promised, they made vows to serve the Lord forever. That is conversion. This is the first time I've read of in history a complete ship was converted, every single man on board that ship. And Jonah, the evangelist, brought an entire ship to faith in the Lord. Now, you could finish the book of Jonah there and say, that's it. As an evangelist, I've done my job. 
I don't know of any previous evangelist who brought an entire ship to the Lord uh, in, 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 in history. But Jonah did. And you think, well, I've done enough. God had other ideas. This was only the start. Because we, I would suggest, seek exactly this experience for people here in Amesbury, that people would come to Jesus, that they would turn from the things they've done wrong, from whatever they worship, and they would find the Lord Jesus and would trust in him. And we seek that for the world. But God had other ideas for Jonah. He provided the storm in the first case. Now Jonah was trying to get out of it and die. God wasn't going to let that happen. He provided a big fish. It actually says a huge sea monster in the uh, original version of the Bible. And it swallowed Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah was not permitted to die because God had prepared a submarine to get him out of there. Now, don't think that we as witnesses should be ready to jump away and find a submarine to get us out of witnessing. It's a job for all of us. We are all called to testify. And it is amazing God's grace that he took someone as reluctant, as stubborn, as hard-nosed as Job, uh, Jonah to turn him around and bring him to the place where, as Mike will explain next week, there was a bit of a change of heart. We look forward to that, Mike, next week. But let us look forward to sharing the good news of Jesus where we are and seeing the massive results that Jonah did in his day. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your patience, your kindness, and your compassion. And that you love everyone on this planet, no matter how evil we might think they might be. Stir our hearts, and in the power of your Spirit, may we join in that witness and testimony and see many come to you here in Amesbury and beyond as you open up people's hearts to your grace and to the knowledge of Jesus. This we ask in his precious name. Amen.